Very often, the expert or the CEO is going to think one thing and the data is going to say something else. Our speaker today has lived and worked in Germany, Canada and Brazil working in sales, data analytics, and software engineering, and has recently started as a software engineer at Alana AI. Mateus Veloso Diaz has a tenacious work ethic and mindset and believes that anything is possible as long as one wants it enough. Thanks, Spencer. We are so excited to have you as our featured speaker today, Mateus. Thank you for being willing to share your journey with us. Take it away whenever you're ready. Hey everyone, I'm Matt. Uh, I think most of you already know me, but uh, in that case, I made a very quick presentation to kind of share a little bit of my experience before and after the bootcamp. And then the, the focus today is going to be mainly for, for us to have a good conversation, I think. I'm not that experienced to give a talk, teaching people. I more like want to know what you guys think about this interesting topic. And here we go. I just want to talk a little bit about my journey. First of all, starting back in 2012, I lived in Canada. This is in Victoria. So this is, as I was saying, the, in, the, in, Victoria, in Victoria, BC, as I was telling uh, earlier on the language learning part, actually immersing, immersing yourself is so important. So this is kind of the reason that led me there because English is so important, right? But uh, something that happened and I wasn't actually expecting is that when I went there, Jay, they actually gave me uh, programming lessons in Python, which was this sort of new language at the time. And this, though it was completely unexpected, it kind of changed my life forever because I, I fell in love with it. So the since then, I'm just being crazy to to start an actual software engineer job. Also, something else I want to share is that uh, how much this broaden my perspective, actually going to other places and meeting people and uh, understanding their culture. And this is so also something the, the bootcamp brings us to actually have this, uh, this community here, for example. While in school, I, I mean, in university, I went to this formula teams. And basically, we built formula cars that people race on student competitions yearly. And this sort of gave me an engineering mindset, how, how to understand, how to solve problems as an engineer, which I think is something very, very good, and both good and bad, because on some problems, you're going to actually do very well using the, an engineering mindset to it. And on other problems, you're going to do very poorly if you just think about thinking too much about numbers, too much about metrics, and not enough about people. And that, that's why, like, it's important to have a multidisciplinary team. And this would be something I would only later learn. So this is probably the reason I got accepted into the bootcamp, because as soon as I quit the Brazilian formula team, I just, okay, I'm going to start a startup. I don't really know where the idea came from. Uh, we have a big entrepreneurship sponsor here in Brazil, and he he's called Flavio Augusto. He's owner of the Orlando soccer team, for example, and he just keeps pushing it in his social media all the time. And I was just, well, uh, why don't we try it? 
me and two friends of mine, we just gathered together and started this startup. It was based on online education, mainly for people who weren't learning what they had to actually learn in university. Because, for example, I study electrical engineering and my, uh, my curriculum was written 10, 10, 20 years ago. And it's not like it's still for the 2000s. It's not for the 2020s, for sure not. So there's this big problem in Brazil where education is lagging too much behind the actual practice. So this was kind of the idea there. And here the, the engineer mindset was a big problem. Bill talks about this in the bootcamp, which is like when you're an engineer, you just look at the problem and you just start immediately thinking about solutions and start building them. So this I made the, the, a, a big mistake, which was just bring the team in and just go and start uh, writing code and making the website on WordPress and whatnot. But then we didn't have enough contact with the customers we wanted. Uh, we didn't understand anything about business and actually knowing how to make money. I just did like this top of my head math where we would just make money from advertisement. But users showed quite a restraint to having a lot of advertisement when you try to show yourself at this uh, learning platform, which is supposed to be free. So that there were some problems there, mainly business problems. That started giving me my first uh, my first startup. Like learning, when, when you fail at something, you basically just learn. So after one year of work, I kind of went for other projects because this one wasn't really taking off. But main, the, the main problem was that we didn't really have a business plan. We just kind of started creating the website and just hoping uh, people came, which is something engineers usually do. Yeah, don't do that. Always talk to your customers. That, that's one, something I learned back in 2016. Just to go a bit deeper. This tech is my hammer part there is that that's something that Bill Gates says. And I think that's a great way to, to solve problems as in uh, you have a hammer and you, everything you see is a, uh, I forgot how you say it in English, but you just kind of want to hammer it. Uh, every problem, you just use the same tool. And sometimes that work, but you need to actually have a team that is diverse enough to see when that is going to work and when that is going to not work. So in 17, 18, uh, I went to study and work in Germany. It was a fantastic experience. Uh, I spent one year there. Just understanding their culture was so good and getting this, this international mindset where you, you see the, the good and the bad in each part of the culture. I mean, Brazilian culture is just so much warmer, so much more receptive. But German culture is just this insane work ethic and punctuality and this uh and that was actually something that helped me a lot today for brazilians are known to not be very punctual like at all even in meetings or that kind of stuff that that was also a good experience finally in 2018 i went to the boot camp and i was like the third youngest person there it was a great experience as i'm sure everyone here knows but Something I was mentioning with Spencer, uh, that he was, he was also one of the youngest people in his class, is that while I felt very liberated to be the youngest one and be like, okay, I know nothing next to what all these people know, especially one of the people in my squad, which was Kevin, which was a PhD. He's a PhD in Stanford, which was like, oh my God, right? But that, that, was, that felt great because I just felt, okay, I can make mistakes. There's people here who are just going to correct me because they... They might just know better, and, and that was great.
and already back then we we thought of a of a big data solution for our company which uh we ended up with the second shared second place within our bootcamp which was a pretty good thing at all but mo mostly the the bootcamp is just uh, such a wonderful experience and this this freedom to make mistakes is something i it's probably one of the biggest lessons i learned there which in just just be in a place where you're you can make mistakes and just acknowledge that you're making mistakes and then correct them otherwise if you have to be in an environment where you have to hide your mistakes as happens in in a lot of companies here in brazil uh you're never going to correct them so yeah that that was something uh good that i've learned finally i went into sales uh as in uh Whenever I was studying entrepreneurship, people would always say like sales, 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 like go for sales. And I was like, okay, I already had an engineering job in Germany. Let me, let me use my internship time that I just uh, can be very flexible with to do an internship in sales. So I just did it and it was wonderful because it just made me understand so much more about business and how to deal with people in general and mainly that we're all salesmen and and women because we're all always selling something whether we know it or not so it's much better to be in the in the team that knows they're they're in sales well today i'm back to engineering where i'm much happier but i still understand i'm, I'm always selling something i mean you're always selling whenever you talk to the to the customer you're always in a position where you have to keep convincing them that to stick with your product and not the competitions and well just having your boss not fire you is kind of always selling again the the looks of things are very important and something that it's completely contrary to the engineer mindset is that you can have a successful company if you have an average product and a great sales team but if you have a bad sales team and an amazing product you're probably not going to have a good time of course, there. Are, uh, if anyone wants to discuss that, that would be great. But studying a little bit, uh, I saw that that was kind of, it was kind of the, it is kind of the case in most cases. Of course, there are exceptions. Was something I saw in this company was that they do a very data-driven decision-making, even though they're as far away from engineering as you can be. They are still very much uh, using data for everything in this kind of, flick the switch in my mind to understand that bringing concepts from engineering, which is like, but maybe it's not just from engineering, but uh, to me, it kind of feels like it is, which is like data analysis and just using statistical methods to do things. You can just do so much more than just create a project. You can just kind of follow your KPIs and, and whatnot. And this, this company was just crazy about data. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, I spent one year in sales and one year in engineering, which they, they had to create this data analysis slash science there just for me because I, I just had so much more aptitude to do it and we started many good projects there. And, all, and most important of all, I found a mentor who, even though I'm not there anymore, he's a, we still talk very often and he has 16 years of entrepreneurship experience. I would say he is one of uh, my best mentors and whenever like even with personal stuff and like work ethic and everything, he just has time to talk to me and just this is such a good thing that I would just tell everyone here, like one good thing you can do for your career and especially in entrepreneurship, just find a mentor. Today, I have 
I, as I said, I quit my, my last job because it, uh, it was more like working in an Excel sort of 2000s technology. And I was just feeling it would take too long for Obabox, which is the last company, to become an actual, even though they had a lot of data, to become an actual uh, an artificial intelligence company, which is something I'm very passionate about. So I took one step back to take two steps forward, which is I quit a job I really liked in the company. I really like with people I really like working with to kind of work for the my long-term goal, which is keep learning as much as I can until I feel it's the moment to, to launch a company. And that's been the plan since my first startup failed in 2016. Basically, I left. I spent almost nine months only writing my thesis. It's just a, a, an AI face recognition thesis. Uh, any questions about face recognition are also welcome. And I mean, it was a great experience. I didn't make any money uh, doing that, but it's kind of the, like having the patience because uh, patience is just, just so important to stop and focus on the academic part first to then be able to join an, uh, an AI company, which happened this year. Luckily, this company works only remotely and I was able to find a job amid the, the COVID crisis. And I just uh, joined there as a, a data software engineer. Well, always having this beta mindset is great, which is like, okay, I learned a little bit about engineering, let's go for sales. And then I'm now back in engineering, but more in AI than actual uh, doing the engineering part, which I was before, like building cars and et cetera. The normal phrase people say is improve, adapt, overcome, which is something I felt uh, this year with COVID that I kind of felt very bad because I had my graduation coming up and that has been postponed because everything that happened and well, it's kind of still a mess, my university. Just doing the best with what you can. I mean, I, I was able to find a job even before getting my diploma. And so, which is something I wouldn't have thought would be possible in the software engineering part. So always question your, your assumptions. Oh, yeah. And just one more thing about the bootcamp. I never thought I would get accepted. I just I just questioned my assumptions and said, okay, let, let me just try. I had a good, I have a friend who who participated, Lucas, in class seven, I think, in Australia. And he just told me, yeah, just just go for it, man. And if it doesn't work, I mean, you have nothing to lose. And then, yeah, it worked. Thank God. And I'm here with you guys today. Now you, that you guys are experts in, in me, in my experience, I would like to start conversations about, I have some suggested topics, but mainly I would like the initiative to come from, from you guys. So my suggestions are, entrepreneurship, uh, well, investing in data science, analytics versus data science, what's the difference? AI versus data science, and just talking about new tech, and also anything else you might want to talk about. Thank you very much for taking us through that presentation, Matt. It's really good to be able to see sort of your journey and how you've come to where you are now. What I was hoping to get an idea of from you is, you, you talked about how you first learned Python and you've talked about data analytics, but I was hoping to get an idea of what sort of interests you in particular about data analytics. At first, when I was in the formula team, it kind of was something that fell on my lap because uh, I was the one who knew Python and Python is very good for data analysis. So I, I wasn't actually very driven at that part. I was more focused on electrical engineering back then, but uh, I just really really like analyzing 
graphs and analyzing data and just finding the the right data to to use and solve problems in the best way possible. So that that's why I kind of really like data analytics. But uh, as I as I said, like today I'm more focused on AI. I think AI is a AI can just do that for you. I mean, you don't have to go yourself and look at the data yourself if you have a AI that's good enough to be able to find the the optimi to optimize this problem for you. So today that's what I'm most passionate about building uh, artificial intelligence. Is there any particular problem that you're super excited to see artificial intelligence tackle or solve? Yeah, so uh, uh, we were talking earlier, Nancy, about uh, self-driving cars. I think that's going to be, well, I'm very excited about cars, as you have seen. But I think that whenever we get there, it's going to be a way of no return because we're just going to be able to save so many lives with self-driving cars because you can just make them to be so much better than humans are because humans are terrible. I think in Brazil... 50,000 people die a year only in car accidents. In the US, the statistics are kind of similar. So you're just going to be able to save so many lives. I mean, if you take a look at how many lives COVID has taken, in Brazil, it's like two years of car accidents. So there's just so much, so many human potential that could be not wasted in that regard. And it's something that society is going to have to grow and to to learn how to deal with it uh, as in society had every single technology that comes first the technology comes and then the culture to accept it comes because for example social media we're still adapting to it even though it's sort of 20 years old because we're right now talking about at least in brazil fake news and how to deal with that and especially using social media for elections which is like is that a fair process so it's a sort of, sort of a cultural evolution that needs to happen after we already have the technology in our day-by-day -day basis. Hi, Matt. Uh, this is Zubi. Can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for your uh, presentation. Uh, let's talk GPT-3. Uh, for those who may not know, uh, GPT-3 is the third version of the GPT software released by OpenAI. OpenAI started out as a non-profit to democratize AI um, knowledge and information and research. And uh, last year, they got $1 billion from Microsoft. And I think the pre year before that, they become a for-profit. Um, GPT-3 is this um, amazing piece of software that was trained on half a trillion data points, 500 billion data points. So. Matt, what can you tell us about GPT-3, the pros, the cons, what good it could do, and what not so good it could do? Yes, GPT-3, yeah, it's a great question, actually. So there was some problems with GPT-2 because OpenAI didn't even want to release it, uh, the, the full version, uh, to the public. So just to give some context, uh, whenever you build an artificial intelligence, the algorithm itself isn't that important as much as the, the training data. I mean, uh, if you just have the algorithm without the, without the algorithm being trained, 
you're, you're just going to have useless uh, a useless AI. But when you, after you train it in millions of uh, graphics cards, mainly are the main way people train it today, you just get this really powerful model. So it's the same algorithm, but much, uh, much more improved. So in GPT-2, they actually didn't release the full version with the with all the uh, weights trained because they said, okay, people are just going to be able to use this to do fake news. And uh, it's kind of uh, ironic that a company called OpenAI doesn't release its software because they're not being very open at that. But I think it was mostly like a sort of just to get more press and people worrying about Terminator and stuff, uh, which is something that gets a lot of press for AI companies. But in the end, uh, GPT-3 is just much more powerful than that. It, of course, like is in the next version. And it was released. So I haven't actually taken a look at the, the code myself yet, uh, Zuby, uh, but thanks for bringing that up. But I, I do think it, this is just a part of the of the social development we need and the societal development we need to actually to be able to deal with these new technologies which is like right now we're gonna have a text generated by gpt3 that looks just like a journalistic text it looks may look even identical to something it feel identical i mean to something you've already read because it's just such a powerful ai so you won't be able to know robots from people in the internet, which is uh, which is sort of the, the, exactly what Alana AI is doing. Actually, my the company I work for they they are focused on natural language processing, which is the part of AI that focuses on generating and giving you back text or voice. So, like talking to, for example, Siri or Alexa. There, there's also a natural language processing AI. But the main sales point of Alana is that it looks like a person, a very real person is answering you on Facebook. And some of the biggest companies in Brazil are using it. I don't know if you guys know Natura, but it's like uh, a company listed on our stock exchange and it's worth uh, maybe uh, maybe a couple billion dollars, uh, maybe even three billion dollars. I'm not, not very sure about the exact value but it's a it's a big company and and they don't they cannot i cannot disclose all, all our clients because some of them want to remain private but just so that you have an idea like they are clients they're just kind sort of not telling people that they're being answered by a robot uh, they're just being sort of uh led to believe that they're being answered by a real person and i think this is going to happen more and more now that gpt3 is available so as I, as I said, tech is my hammer. So to solve that problem, I think the best way is just to use AI to know whether the text is real or fake. Because AI can know whether text was generated by a human or not. Uh, at least in some, uh, I read some articles that AI can do that. But just see a new reading, we might not be able to discredit it. So that might be a part of the, the cultural evolution uh, and development we need to actually get to a point where this technology doesn't like sway elections one way or the other, like is like can happen, like it can happen today. I actually have sort of a related question, and um, it's it's partly for the project that I'm working on, but I I just feel like like 
You know, the, the AI text conversations I have can be very helpful for technical service and it definitely has a place. Um, but, you know, as someone that's worked in a service industry and honestly in customer service since I was like 16, I, I just feel like we really need that human contact. And I worry that um, as we do replace a lot of these services, you know, uh, replace humans that we are really losing something in the mix. Um, do you think that it, it can, like, how do you think that blend of both can work? Cause I'm, I'm, I don't think there's like a perfect answer, but I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's a great question. Nancy. thank you. Uh, so the Alana, which is the company I work for again, it it actually does that eventually you get to a point where the conversation gets so deep with the customer that it it just integrates to a real person talking and without actually sort of you noticing that it just did the switch but i, I do think that mixing both are the the best uh well there, there are things that ai is just simply better than us at doing without our help but this is help helping other people is not one of them because AI can't really feel empathy for you. It can fake it, but it can't feel uh well the the uh, AI weak AIs we have today. Um, so a weak AI is an AI sort of that doesn't have conscience. A strong AI would be sort of the Terminator kind. It doesn't exist yet. Get that actually has consciousness in those that they're doing. But to to your question again, Nancy. Peter Thiel writes in his book uh, From Zero to One that it's not a, a either or question, but whether how we can best integrate it so that people do what they do best and uh, machines can do what they do best. And his company, Palantir, I think, so he's one of the, probably everyone here knows, but he's one of the PayPal founders, but he also founded Palantir uh, later. And it's a it's a billion dollar company that does exactly that. It uses both AI and machines to with with the help of experts. And in the tests, in the scientific papers, you can actually see that if you do, for example, uh, one doctor doing diagnostics, maybe it's a very good doctor that has 15 years of experience. He's gonna have sort of a 97 percent, uh, uh, maybe 95, 97 percent sort of accuracy in his diagnostics. But if it's a team of five doctors, they're gonna get to maybe 90, 98, 99%. And if you get an AI, the AI can get to it up to 98% too. So it's better than one doctor, but it's worse than the team of five doctors. But if you just do the AI plus the one doctor, you can get to 99.5%. I'm maybe messing maybe forgetting the exact percentages here, but that's kind of, the message is like, you can get better results by using both. And it's just gonna be a, a matter of business interest and costs. Cause I mean, r training an AI machine with doctors is gonna be very expensive, but after you have it trained, maybe just, let's say uh, an AI could just tell you if you had COVID without actually taking a look at your blood. Maybe just if it takes a, uh, a sense of your temperature and your health, uh, just measuring your health in other ways, maybe you could know. Uh, I don't 
with today's technology that's not possible but maybe in 50 years who knows so it's just gonna be a a, a thing of how much more expensive would, would it be for this problem to get a person on it and how much business uh is that gonna bring us back so it, it's just a numbers game in the end i think hi matt we have a question from one of our listeners that i'd like to read for you she writes you mentioned using ai in relation to covid19 and i was wondering if you could delve a little bit more into that and explain what you're considering looking at. Yeah, so I've been, I've seen a lot of people doing that and people bringing this huge online databases uh, like John Hopkins University and stuff to actually train AI models. And today, for example, what you have is contact tracing is being done a lot by AI in the countries that are doing it right because you sort of have this immense amount of data points that one single person can't actually follow. But if you have an AI do it, it, can, it has no problem to do it, dealing with lots of information, as long as it's simple information, as in people are represented by data points moving. So in, in places like offices, you have this in, in remodeled offices, People are using uh, like sort of sensors to traders from each other, and also whenever someone gets sick, you can also contact trace them like exactly who they talked to, who they approached in the office, and then you can automatically have uh, an AI tell them, okay, this person has sort of a forty percent probability they should take a test. Uh, and then you can sort of do this sort of contract tracing with it. So that is one way that AI is being applied. And but mainly our our biggest tool against uh, COVID, which is social distancing, is not very technological at all. Just keeping people at home. And well, not not many AI models are being are using the data of like how much you. So it's because it's just it's just so hard to get good data, and if you have bad data, you can build an AI model on it. For example, Brazilian uh, Brazilian data is just terrible, and the, the government one day just decided, okay, we're not gonna share the the DAF's data anymore, and they just backtracked on it. But just so that you guys can have a a notion of how unreliable official data can be. So in that way, it poses as a challenge for for us AI people to to build models on top of it. So it's mostly being used to contact tracing as far as I know. Maybe uh, maybe some other people here know other ways that it be, is being used. We have a follow-up comment from one of our listeners that I'll read for you, Matt. I agree with you that there's great potential to use AI in conjunction with contact tracing. However, in regard to using AI for diagnostic purposes, AI is proving to be unreliable for diagnosing the vast majority of diseases, even diseases that are very well characterized. A few very specific examples of AI having a very high rate of reliability diagnosing diseases, but I think it's important to stress only been evidenced in these very specific diseases. AI diagnosis may become better in 15 to 20 years time, but at the moment, 
the more useful application appears to be a collaboration between doctors and the AI system. Like you were saying, if you have both of these running in parallel, they can benefit each other. I personally think it will be some time before we can rely solely on an AI system for disease diagnosis. Yeah, I think I think this, and, and I'm gonna be. I work in data science. I work with AI. I work with um, machine learning and all those things. And I think uh, all of this goes back to the fundamentals, right? And it's um, for me, AI is just a buzzword, right? Because uh, the only part of supposedly AI that has been demonstrated to work is what we call machine learning. And machine learning is in, in its most fundamental structure is are regressions of 100 different flavors, right? So um, that's, that's very important to understand. So there are two uh, ways in which we can think about AI. One is one thing that can help us to identify patterns, and that is what the regression does. It's a classification source classification or um, identifies patterns. But another thing is to have consciousness and being able to make decisions. And based on the fundamentals of mathematics, there's a theorem that is called Gettle's theorem that has demonstrated that even within the human way of understanding something, that's impossible, right? It's uh, So there's the some, I, I don't I don't know how to say it in English, but it's something that is called indisability or something like that. You can take a look at it. So um, I think that the most important thing is to understand how this technology could help us, but it's for sure is not going to substitute um, our most important capabilities, right? It, I, I cannot see an AI working in a team, for example, right? It, it's just a tool. And in that way, we, we need to understand and we need to learn how to use it as a tool, right? And I think that there's a lot of buzzwords around, but these are like uh, 100 ago years mathematics that has been using now, right? It's just We just change a little bit, so we're using regressions. But what would happen when we use new mathematics to new problems, right? And that is where I think in my, sometimes in my day-to-day -day work, I can see that I don't need machine learning or I don't need those kind of things. If you understand well statistics and if you understand, so for example, for me, sometimes when I do simulation, I use um, decisions. So I just need to know what kind of phenomena I'm looking at and I can simulate a little bit and then I can optimize it, right? And I don't need anything related to AI. Yeah, it's sometimes exploratory data analysis and visualization is much more powerful than, than any machine learning that then you have to review 100 times the regression. And if the regression is not giving you the parameters that you are looking for, then you need to use regressions inside random forests. And then you don't know what the algorithm is doing because you just, you just 
it, you are just looking at an average, right? So I think I think it's it's in our hands to be able to understand the best technology and uh, and try to. I, I think that's a that's a difference between data science and analytics. Data science is like the mathematical way. Data science is worried about the mathematical way of seeing this, the proofs, the theory. That's that's why it's called data science. And then uh, analytics is when you instantiate or when you go and do that in the field, um, it, it's you need to analyze things to see, wow, I think this model is not what I was expecting. <laughs> I will go the other way. And then that's more like the analytics is more the tinkering part of it, right? It's It's more like, okay, this is more or less good, but I don't think this is what we're looking for. Hi, Matt. I have an additional comment here that I'd like to read to you um, from one of our listeners. I do understand that there have been and will continue to be many exciting developments in AI, but I do think it's important to temper our expectations a bit. You know, the expectations of what AI can do are so huge And it's great to envision what it's capable of because it makes people come up with fantastic ideas for the future. I just want to make the point that it's not realistic to expect AI to be able to immediately be ready for application to all or even most health conditions and diseases to help clinicians and scientists. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with both of you. Uh, And me and DJ uh, have talked about this before. It's just a, it is just a tool after all, even though it gets a lot of hype towards this problem of the disease identification, for example, it depends on, you can actually, cannot actually tell the AI to be nuanced as in watch out for this, because this might, might be a good indicator. It just depends on how quantifiable the, the disease is. And some, some diseases are not very quantifiable at all. I mean, uh, the common cold, or COVID, if you're if you don't have a blood sample at least, you just like have the temperature and the symptoms. It, they are almost indistinguishable. So, in that regard, AI is not going to be able to help very much because it's it's going to be a bit bad tool. And also, as uh, Guillermo said, uh, sometimes you you don't need it. It's just you're just using this. Uh, awful about, uh, amount of energy and computer power to create this uh, machine learning model, whereas you could just solve it with so many other tools. And in the end, AI is just a, an algebra, algebraic and statistical model in the end. It's not like, uh, I think that the term is very, very good marketing, calling it an intelligence, but it's, it, it is just sort of making calculations and outputting numbers as results. Using AI sells. Using AI in your title and in your marketing it sells. Yeah, that's true. Right. But, but uh, there's another thing. I think that uh, what the and I agree with what Raman uh, was saying in the way in the sense that so I think that we create our world by expectations, right? And if you if you see how we transact in the in the stock exchange market, the stock exchange market tries to capture the future expectations about the development of the economy, right? And the uh, AI is trying to capture also part of the expectations that we have in developing, blah, blah, blah. So it's just another way that is driving 
the way in which we we behave and the way in which we with the business. And I think that the that the advantage of having this is that well, it, it's not going to be perfect, but it's as one teacher told me at some point, it's it's better to be approximately correct than precisely wrong. So it's better to have something than nothing, right? And that that's where I where I think it adds. I have one more comment here from a listener that I'd like to read for you. AI diagnosis has actually been applied in breast cancer imaging very successfully, and they've shown with statistical significance that AI can diagnose breast cancer far more accurately than clinicians. The flip side, however, is if you don't need the clinician to look at the CT scan and apply their analysis, what do you need the clinician for? It could be argued that perhaps the clinicians are not that well trained and that there should have been more investment in their training to understand the CT images and diagnose them more accurately. But the point still stands that if you have the AI algorithm doing a very reliable and accurate rate of analysis, it makes the role of the clinician in terms of analyzing the CT data defunct. Do you see what I mean? I think that's only going to be for some things, not a lot of things, because the, the biggest problem I would say with uh, artificial intelligence is that our best deep learning and machine learning models uh, tell us nothing about how they get to their decisions. Uh, so the AI engineer has no idea why the, the AI is saying uh, that the breast cancer is positive or not. It just it just does. They, it's like you can go inside the algebra and look at the numbers, but they mean nothing to us. Uh, it means a lot for the for the algorithm, but for us, we cannot translate that. So that's another big problem in how AI has been approached, and that's what I was referring at the beginning with old time, like 100 years ago, mathematics. With it's so the way in which AI and deep neural networks and all these things do do their their analysis in in the same way the random forest, it's a black box, right? Because they run thousands and thousands and thousands. So there there are ways in which mathematics behaves, right? When when you don't know the the nature, the intrinsic nature of something, you do a statistics. When you begin knowing it, you begin doing probability. And when you completely know it more or more, you can do deductive models. Right, but the, what's what's happening is that these models, what they are doing, it's calculations and weighted averages and uh, gradient descents so fast that you cannot you cannot see what is happening, and that's that's where I think this kind of mathematics has to be backed by another kind of mathematics in which you could have more robust models, right? Because then. In the, in the way in which AI behaves today, you leave everything to the computer, and then you don't know what's happening inside. So, oh, guys, this discussion has been great. I just wanted to give uh, Redmond uh, a, a chance to, to make his questions. Very important, keeping yourself skeptic with all the hype. That is definitely something very important in data science. I'm just going to read out Redmond's question. Hi, Matt. Can you talk briefly about your view on ethical AI in startups and how some black box AI, though effective, might have a hard time with compliance and difficult to enter certain markets? 
like the US, which is big on privacy? I'm nowhere near an expert in compliance in the US, but I know that the company I work in ha is actually based in, in, in Delaware, as, as, uh, as most companies are. And so the Brazilian subsidiary is a subsidiary of the, the American company. And our models are very much black box. And we do need to keep a lot of data on our users to be able to make the models work. So there, as a, I mean, you have Google and um, so many other companies working from the US, so it's definitely something possible to do. I wouldn't be sure about which field you are doing it in, because for example, I know that in medicine it's just much harder to let the AI just take over, because as I said in the, the previous discussion we had, uh, you're going to have problems because the AI won't know how to tell you, okay, this person has X and Y because they have this or that. The AI is just going to say 99% chance cancer. That's it. Uh, maybe a physician is going to look at it and say, okay, I agree. But maybe they're going to look at it and say, I disagree because why is it making this? And the, the AI can't tell you. It just uh, It just says it so and then you kind of accept this black box model. So I would be in the compliance, even though, as I said, I understand almost nothing about it. I would watch about which sector you're using it in startups, but mainly tech startups are, are probably going to be fine. And regarding this discussion, maybe GJ can uh, talk a little bit about it. Well, about the... So that is very, very difficult and you have to continue addressing the, that kind of things because what happens is that when you run a machine learning model or whatever and reality changes, you need to adjust it again and adjust it again and adjust it again and you need to make sure that it's complying always. But there's another problem. If the algorithm is recursive and it has, it, so it, uh, it composes over itself, to create something, you cannot control where it's going. So it can go in many directions. And that's where I think um, controlling that in terms of compliance is going to be super, super difficult. Because then you, need, you will need to create systems that control systems, right? And, and that's, that's super difficult. So it's a, there's a big problem with that. And there have been many many ways in which it has been demonstrated that for example in facebook they created an algorithm for um hiring people and when when they saw the algorithm inside they saw that it was a bias to hire guys and not ladies for example so it was biased towards towards guys or things like that you know yeah yeah, just, just just to tell everyone, I mean, it, the bias may not come from the algorithm itself. No one is writing like higher white men, but it's just going to look at the data. And if the data is biased, which it mostly it certainly is, for example, the crime data is highly biased. So so you you can have bias in the data, you can have bias in the algorithm, and then you can have bias in the way in which sometimes writes the algorithm, right? So. And the problem is that even us as human beings, we sometimes we don't know that we have bias, right? So that's super difficult. Most most times, I would say, I mean, 
uh, when you enter the data science field, you start studying about biases and you start to get a notion about biases, but eventually you just kind of, you know that you're not, you're never free from it. So I, I would like, uh, I think, Carlos Mendonca to, to ask his question. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. It's been interesting all the way. I'm just going to take a step back from the AI questions and go back to where you were talking about how you were impressed on how the sales team was making a lot of data-driven decisions. I agree that data-driven decisions are massive. Like you can, you can realize something that you have not thought of before, or you can realize that your, your assumption was wrong when you look at data. And that's something I experienced on a couple of, you know, student programs I took in the USA, including, including the, the bootcamp. But the thing is, I don't live in the USA, I live in Mexico. And I guess as a Brazilian or someone who, live, who lived in Brazil, like maybe you can agree in this, the data that you have available in, in a country like ours is far uh, less complex and far less complete than that of the USA. Like there's not enough researchers, not enough, uh, you know, government agencies doing qualitable data. So how do you get around that for sales purposes, like not AI purposes, but just um, how do you take data decisions in an environment that doesn't have good data? Yeah, that's a great question. And thanks for changing the subject, because uh, AI is, uh, you can just get in. It's just a loophole. You can just go into it and then get lost. So uh, you, can't, you can't make good data-driven decision-making. I mean, because I would say most companies in Brazil today use decision experience-driven decision-making, which is like the person with the most experience makes the decision and that's, and that's that. And I mean, of course, you have many different kinds of companies, but I feel that, that this is the reality. Uh, I would like to look at the data to see whether I'm right or not. But uh, in that regard, when you bring to those places uh, that have a culture of following the, the experts or the so-called experts who know a lot on a field, and you try to bring it to be a data-driven decision-making place, you're going to have a very hard time. Not because you can't get the data, because with, uh, I mean, with enough money, with enough people, you're going to be able to get the data. I mean, there's so many places that do data, that collect data, they're just, they do data mining for you and then they, uh, they can just get you what you need to make your decisions. The thing is, very often the, the expert or the CEO or whoever it is, is going to be, is going to think one thing and the data is going to say something else. So this is something that as an intern, I, uh, I, I felt very appreciated in the company because I kept, I could just tell the CEO, this is in Obabok, the, the, when I was in sales, I could just tell the CEO, no, you're wrong. The data just tells you that you're wrong. Of course, I didn't say like this, uh, like that, but like I would show him the data and ask, okay, I'm looking at this. This is what I'm seeing. This is goes directly contrary to what you believe. As in, we had two television projects. Uh, I mean, he just, he wanted to keep both. And I wanted to, not me, I mean, I, I, in my opinion, the data was showing that we should cut one and focus only on the other one, uh, which was sort of this 80-20 rule. I mean, uh, cut, uh, cut the losers short and let the, okay, that's a, the, that's a financial markets thing, but cut, the, cut your losses early and let the, the, the wins go long. 
And in the end, that's what the data was showing. I mean, we were just losing money on one of these projects because the, the cost of giving them uh, our the content, I mean, it's, it, it's, I won't go into the detail of what uh, product we sold, um, but I mean, we were just losing money and we would keep losing money. We had many projects that were losing money. So he realizing that the data was telling that, he just went and cut all projects, not not this just one I was showing, but all projects that uh, had like I think more than six months and were not profitable. I mean, because eventually it happened in the uh, in the history of the company that one project turned around and became the most profitable one we had. But I mean, when you're playing the numbers game, you want to be winning most of the time. You don't want to bet that. Uh, your company is going to survive because a bad project is going to turn good. You want to kind of have the the eighty twenty rule working for you. So, so yeah. Most importantly, you need to to change the culture, and and that is something very hard. Mostly, it, it, if you have a change of leadership, maybe it's something that can be done. But if you don't have a culture that you can just tell people uh, they're wrong or that they might be wrong, if we analyze the data together and find out whether they're wrong. Then, if you don't have that, it, it's just useless do, doing getting the good data you might want to get. Some of the companies what they're doing, and I have some experience also in the Mexican market. Um, so, if you don't have the data, you create it, right? So, if you see that the phenomena has a Poisson distribution or a binomial distribution or a, a normal distribution, and those kind of behaviors have fixed equations and then you can model or do random experiments over them using normal statistics or Bayesian statistics and then you can use that as a proxy to solve the problems that you want to solve and that's what we so that's what I'm, I was saying not always is data science sometimes you need to use mathematics like linear algebra or other kind of things to solve other problems. And the problems that you are asking for sales can be solved with a more, uh, I would say, simulation or modeling approach. And that's that, that, that was what I did when I was in consulting, right? And that would be my approach. But again, it's better to be approximately correct than precisely ground. Yeah, that was some very good input. Uh, and I agree, like, we do have a culture of just following the guy that's on top. Uh, but yeah, we need to change that. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for taking so many questions, Matt. Um, I, I definitely want to be respectful of your time and, um, and everyone's time. I was sort of wondering if maybe we can propose uh, Brian's question to you in... GJ, um, I don't think we're going to get like a uh, an answer that's going to solve the world's problems right now. But if you want to just kind of take a stab at it, and then I would love it if we could continue this discussion definitely um, on on the text channels, and uh, we're we're definitely going to have to have a follow up conversation as well. So. Um, he disagrees with the assertion that jobs are not being lost with AI. Um, early career type jobs are going to be crushed in time. So he's asking, how do you help those in the lower class who are going to be hit hardest by the AI revolution to train for the jobs of the future? 
a wonderful question yes and i absolutely uh agree i didn't go in this uh before because i wanted to give a carlos a chance to uh go for his question but i agree that ai is, is destroying and it's going to destroy even a lot of jobs as as any technical revolution has done in the last 200 years i mean uh it just happens it's, it's like the society is sort of evolving technologically and sadly that tells you that you cannot just live and have one career forever at least not in the not in capitalism where you need to do something that other people are willing to pay for i mean uh there are some model, uh, some socialists that say okay maybe the government should just hire everyone who who can't get a job in the capitalistic society i think that's a terrible way of doing things i mean it, Brazil, Venezuela, we have a lot of experience with uh, that, th those kinds of approaches. But without going too much detail in, in politics, because I don't think I'm the best person to talk about that, uh, it, it's going to happen. I, I do disagree with Krish. I think it's going to happen. We're going to lose a lot of jobs, especially uh, low for the lower classes. And the only solution that I see today is education. And this is one of the reasons that I started in at my startup in 2016 to sort of provide education for people. And I mean, there's just so much free stuff on the internet, so much stuff you can learn. Um, I, to learn AI, I mean, I haven't spent maybe a hundred dollars. It's, and I could have spent zero if I really wanted, but I wanted to buy some certificates, which are good for my CV, but I could have done it without without having the certificates because the content is just there you can just go read articles and etc and there's just so much code available on github but the, the problem is not everyone can just learn ai in a year uh and it's and even coding some people are saying okay people who are losing their jobs that let's just teach them how to code and i think that's a simplistic and wrong solution not not everyone has the the head for coding i mean it's it's as in and that's a, the same as saying, okay, let's just make everyone an engineer. It's not that easy. I mean, you need to like math. You need to like a lot of things that some people just don't. So in that regard, I think hopefully we could get to a point where, uh, I mean, in Brazil, this is so far away, but maybe in the developed world especially, we can get to a point where we can have education that's good enough for reteaching people after they left school because i mean after you leave maybe give you uh this uh this model where you can work and study uh and learn a new skill for example i know germany has this so much where you don't you have a an university degree that you work three months and um study three months and then work three months and then study three months so you do this for three and a half years and when you graduate for for, with your bachelor's, you're already hired by that company and you've been making money all along because that, that's kind of the problem with people to have that lose their jobs. They can't just go back to university. They, they need the, the cash flow. So that is a very good model that I, I think could work, but this would take immense political will to make happen in, in lots of countries. And it's something that I think it's the most important part of the societal uh, evolution that we need to get 
to live with these new technologies because if we just do what we're doing now, which is letting people fend for themselves, uh, we're gonna have a we're gonna have problems as like the U.S. Midwest has a lot of problems with drug abuse and people who can just give up fighting jobs because they they don't want to code. Maybe that that's something they don't want to do, and that that the a lot of industrial jobs left. So people are sort of uh, having these kinds of problems. So I, I, I absolutely agree. This is such an important field that we need a very complex and multi uh, multilateral solution to to delve into. Thank you very much for that in-depth answer, Matt. I understand it's an incredibly complex question, and I feel like there's so many different uh, approaches and ideas that can get behind it. I think it's probably a good time to sort of wrap things up. Thank you to everyone who joined us today. We um, really appreciate you bringing your different perspectives and energy to today's discussion. Um, and I hope everyone has a great day, evening, night, morning ahead of them. Thanks so much, everyone, for being here and for listening to me. Uh, and thanks so much, Spencer and Nancy, for making this happen. This is such a good, uh, such a good community. I think you're being very key for keeping it alive. And uh, so thanks so much for that, guys. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been awesome having you here. See you guys then. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks. It's been great. All right, take care. Amazing we'll talk conversation. Soon. Really liked it. Thank you. This has been Nancy and Spencer on Founders Voyage Weekly Podcast. Our speaker each week can be reached through our Discord server. Our intro and outro music is from the song Something for Nothing by Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. We'll be back again next week for another episode. Until then, have a great day and continue your voyage.